What's up, you guys? Welcome back to Indirect Message. You know, lately I've been having a little bit of an internal conflict about Instagram. On the one hand, most of my friends use it. A lot of you guys have asked me when I'll hop on again. And it does seem to be one of the more supportive social media platforms out there, which I certainly like. But I also feel like Instagram has some sort of sinister elements that lurk beneath the surface. It's become the platform of choice for millions of people to focus on performing their lives rather than living them, to display their bodies rather than using them. It's not everyone, of course, but it's enough that, you know, if I had a kid, I would really be reining that in. And to everyone else, I would say, proceed with caution. Even the body positive accounts that I've stumbled across aren't always as radical as they appear to be. And my guest today would probably agree with that. On today's episode, I have my first ever two-person-at-once interview with Drs. Lindsay and Lexi Kite. They're joining me to share their critique of the body-positive movement on social media from the inside. They're body-positive activists, they're researchers, and they're twins, which brings an interesting perspective to their work. While this discussion is focused on women and girls in the future, I do want to chat with some other folks who are knowledgeable about body image issues and how they affect other populations like men and boys, trans and non-binary folks. How we see ourselves just has such an enormous impact on how we move through the world, the types of things we're capable of, and of course our mental health, that sort of day-to-day life playing out in our heads. So I really think it's worth a close examination and an examination from a lot of different perspectives. All right, my dears, hold on to your fit tea and your belfies. That's a butt selfie. <laughs> I hope you enjoy our conversation. I had such a light bulb moment when you both pointed out in the book that you're identical twins. And of course, that's such an interesting lens to examine body image through. Is, is that kind of how you got interested in the body image sphere? You know, it's not, but it ended up being, as you said, such a helpful way to view this because it's just always been our norm. You know, it's we know no other way than meeting strangers. And for the first time, they look us up and down and really scan our faces and our bodies to try to identify any perceivable differences and then tell us what those differences are and say, this is how I'm going to tell you apart because Lindsay has the rounder face or Lexi has the crookeder teeth. Like people said this stuff to us our entire oh lives. My goodness. So we grew up knowing no other way. But as we started doing this body image work, later in life, we started recognizing how maybe we had been particularly impacted by these comparisons by other people, by having people have such an interest in what we look like and comparing the two of us to try to see what those differences were. And so that's why we decided decided to start out the book that way, because it does paint kind of an interesting picture for people, because you can imagine whether you are a twin or you're no twins or whatever, what that must be like to have your body kind of scanned. But we realized everyone does that to themselves. This metaphor of having an identical twin from outside yourself, looking in on your body, like you're a stranger to yourself. We all do that. We kind of separate our own identities and then just scan our own bodies and monitor them all day to make sure they look how we think they need to. 
you both did your PhD thesis on body image, right? Yes. We had like complementary research, two huge takeaways from us that we try to share. Um, the first was that self-objectification isn't going away. Like what we want people to know is that you do it, that we all do it. You, It feels different to everybody, but for most people, it's like, it's kind of like a mental um, checklist in your head that when you're walking down the street, instead of, you know, thinking about what a beautiful day it is or that you need to call your mom, you haven't seen her in a while, you have this mental checklist in your head that says, adjust your clothes, pull up those leggings so your muffin top is covered. Like you need to dab that sweat off your upper lip because people are probably looking at you and think that you're a lazy, sweaty pig and on and on and on. We just monitor ourselves according to our worst fears of what we think somebody else might be thinking when they look at us. And once you know you self-objectify, it is the first step to come back home to yourself every time you feel yourself slipping away. The second thing that is so central to our work that we can talk about today is the idea of body image resilience, which is really different than than body positivity that's very popular online. It's different than kind of the all bodies are beautiful mentality. It's why our book is called More Than a Body. Of course, we want people to feel beautiful, but more than anything, we want people to know they're more than beautiful. That if we're just trying to increase our value and our power by expanding the, the guidelines of who gets to feel beautiful to make sure more people do, then we're still, we're still making women think that beauty is the most important thing about them. And body image resilience instead is this way that we can see the pain we've experienced, that we will continue to experience, and instead use that pain as a catalyst to make new choices for ourselves, to take better care of ourselves, to not resort to those old coping mechanisms like disordered eating, exercise as a punishment, hiding because you feel bad about yourself. I think of you guys as being part of the body positive movement. Do you? Yeah, I would say we fit under that umbrella. But at the same time, I think the way we've dif differentiated ourselves a bit from some that may just consider themselves influencers in the space is that we come at it from a research perspective. We kind of call out the movement from the inside. We are known for critiquing it, um, especially some of the body positivity that gets us stuck in that rut of, look whose body is beautiful. My body's beautiful. Your body can be beautiful too. And what we do is kind of point out the ways that that leaves us in a bit of a rut, still thinking about how we look, whether we love the way our bodies look or not. Mm -hmm. I, I've always found it a little bit baffling how heavily the body positive movement does focus on appearance. <laughs> it's yeah. like, it's very yeah. ironic. Um, and even in really feministy spaces, there's often the message that, you know, if you look hot, then you are powerful right? Yeah, the, mm -hmm. the, the power is still coming from the body. Um, yes. And you had, you had talked about this too. I think in, you were talking about the everybody is a bikini body uh, slogan that's yeah. become very popular. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm curious, why did the body positive movement go this way? <laughs> you know, like from the beginning, it could have gone in many directions. I think it's probably a combination of things. One of those is that media representation of women's bodies just didn't expand much and it didn't include um, many women outside of really strict traditional beauty ideals for so long. Well, since the origin of mass media, we see these ideals just being so normalized to the point where girls and women grow up thinking that they are abnormal, that our bodies are embarrassing. It's people wanting to feel beautiful, wanting to really to be 
um, to stop being disgusted by their bodies and having to be embarrassed by them. And I think that's actually a pretty relatable and noble cause to not want people to be disgusted by their perfectly normal, regular bodies. And then on the other side of that is um, this problem with social media, where uh, women spend a disproportionate amount of time on the apps um, that are heavily visible compared to boys and men um, and girls at a, a very young age are starting this as well. So you've got mediums like TikTok and Instagram. Um, Facebook used to be it. You know, it was started as like a hot or not sort of thing. So yeah. objectification and this real prizing and rewarding and validating of bodies and women's bodies in particular is baked into these platforms. And so with body positivity, on the rise and of course um, finding a real space and an audience on these platforms, it's kind of natural that it takes on this exact same medium and message of, oh, you think those bodies are beautiful? Well, my body is beautiful too and her body is beautiful. And it just carries on with this same tone um, through the same mediums of pointing out more and more bodies and trying to expand that definition of beautiful. But what we've found is that it just isn't having this revolutionary positive body image empowering effect that people thought it would and that people still think it will or is. It's just not. Girls and women feel just as terribly about their bodies. They're just as fixated on their appearance today as they ever have been, despite this much broader variety of bodies that we're able to see in media. And that's where we've got to step in and move the conversation forward out of objectification and into what does real power feel like in your life? What does real empowerment look like for you outside of validation about your body? You know, the type of empowerment that can be taken away just as, free as freely as it's given. And anyway, that's not a sustainable way to maintain your power. Yeah, because bodies change a lot. Exactly. <laughs> I... Encount I had a very unfortunate encounter with a casting director some time ago, and mm. he told me that, you know, we were, we were talking about feminism and stuff, and he said, more or less, that they cast the same type of woman because that's what people want to see. And if they don't, then mm. people don't watch it. And there's not, he can't do anything about that. <laughs> It was basically, you know, his argument. I would say it's a real cop-out. They've been saying that for 30 years. Um, really, that's the excuse. The excuse that everybody has is that that's what sells. That's what audiences want to see. But right. there's been some research done in recent years to show that that's not the case, that actually in advertising, when you expand the types of bodies and looks that are included in campaigns, they skyrocket. People want to see um, people and products. And really, that's entertainment is all about pushing products still. Um, it may be a little more subliminal um, yeah, and it true. may be in the commercials in between, but it's all a vehicle to push products and services. Um, even in just the very act of upholding ideals about who gets to be in that storyline, attractive, desirable, successful, all of those things. And audiences, especially young audiences who have had a little bit more body diversity at their fingertips through social media from the time they're really little, they are getting savvier and they are expecting to see um, more diversity in all of the media entertainment or otherwise that we have access to. You know, I thought that social media would be kind of an interesting way to, you know, expand our media environment, basically, because we're we might end up seeing more of each other rather than more of these, you know, highly curated celebrity images and stuff. But <laughs> I wonder if that's actually what happened, because 
now when you go on Instagram or something, it's not just celebrities that are photoshopped. It feels like everybody is photoshopping themselves. And I almost wonder if that's worse. Well, yeah, it's definitely um, a little bit more insidious because you don't expect it as much. As people have gotten savvier over the years, we knew to look at those advertisements in magazines or on TV or billboards or whatever. And we know that there's been some manipulation there. They've been altered. There's little disclaimers that say these are lash inserts on every mascara ad. And you know that when you don't see any pores and you see a plastic face that, oh, okay, so yeah, that's you know, probably not a fully real human face I'm seeing. Right. Yeah. Like it's a, it's a little more obvious. Yeah. And, and it wasn't at first, but people learned that over time, especially with activism and um, media literacy becoming slightly more popular. Yeah. But yeah. it makes sense that social media would then reflect those exact same ideals. Like if we live in this culture that so values women's bodies at the expense of our full humanity, then people want that same type of currency in their own social media. They want mm -hmm. to get that type of validation. And so that stuff rises to the top. It's still like if you go to the explore page or whatever and see the most popular accounts and the influencers and celebrities that have the most followers, they fit the ideals for the most part. The broader um, majority of them do. They'll fit these extremely particular ideals. And then on top of that, they've been just filtered. And, and Facetune. Facetune is got to be the worst offender. Yeah, I can't believe that app. It's it can so completely shocking. change someone's body shape and face shape and everything. Oh, totally. yeah. And the Kardashians use it consistently. And yet people think that they've got this extreme body type that is accessible with the right workouts and the right shapewear and whatever they are selling. And then it turns out they're still using the apps to create that extreme hourglass. <laughs> it's just so unreal. Yeah, it's really wild. And I mean, maybe there's, you know, there's that info gap that happened with the mm -hmm. magazines that has to happen now with social media. I feel like I do see a little more discussion about it. Like there's the, um, I want to say it's called Instagram reality or something on, on Reddit. Have you guys mm -hmm. seen it? I haven't. I've seen a similar Instagram account though. Okay. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's basically people kind of calling out shopped images all yeah. over Instagram. I mean, there's a little bit of an element of public shaming that I question with that subreddit, mm -hmm. but it, it it does have, I think, overall a, a po the positive effect of helping people realize how common it is. When you're a millennial who has grown up with these very specific, unrealistic ideals, then of course you feel the pressure to represent those ideals in your own social media, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, that's what we grew up with. And yet when we are just filtering ourselves and photoshopping ourselves out of reality, we have to consider the harm. We have to consider that we might be replicating the same ideals that messed us up, raising the bar for everybody around us. Something else that I found kind of interesting was your critique of the selfie. Because, well, I kind of thought of the selfie as maybe somewhat revolutionary at some point. Um, that changed over time. I started to feel a little bit differently about it. Um, you know, at first I thought, oh, well, it's empowering to see so many different types of faces, so many different types of people. But you guys kind of make the case that it's a little complicated, right? With yeah. the selfie and how it can feed into self-objectification. Right. When you zoom out and look at the larger culture that surrounds this practice of taking selfies, then you can see that it's not in a vacuum. It's not just somebody thinking, 
I feel cute taking one picture and putting it on the internet. It's really a part it's of never this just world. one picture, right? No, exactly. <laughs> when you dig in and you actually look behind the scenes, you see that it was 150 pictures from five different angles. You hope that they respond favorably, of course. You hope that you get the likes and the comments. And that's unfortunately where that feeling of empowerment comes from. It is that acceptance that you feel. And unfortunately, the act of taking a selfie and posting it on the internet on its own isn't empowering without getting that feedback that you hope you'll get of people saying, oh, she looks hot. I think she looks cute or go you, whatever it is that they're trying to send in their comment or their like or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so we're asking people to not throw out the idea of taking selfies and not you know, refuse to show their image on the internet. That's not at all what we're saying. <laughs> but we do want people to think about um, their motivations for posting and whether that is actually leading to greater, you know, feelings of personal power or if it's actually contributing to this greater feeling of my body is the most important thing about me and I hope people see me in this particular way that's been cropped and filtered and edited and relit and all of these things. Mm -hmm. um, think of it kind of like self-objectification, but in pictures. When you're self-objectifying, you are picturing your body from the outside. So you're just looking up and down, you're zooming in on parts that you think aren't right. You need to keep your chin up because that double chin is coming, suck that gut in, whatever it is. And so you're doing that to yourself. But when you're taking pictures of yourself, you're doing the same thing in pictures. You're looking at some of those angles where you're like, oh, my face looks fat there, or I'm too shiny. I, you know, my arm looks too round there. And we're doing that same type of self-objectification to try to alter the way other people perceive us in hopes that they'll think we look hotter and therefore make us feel better about ourselves. But that doesn't mean we don't like think it's awesome for people to snap photos of themselves, like enjoying an experience, enjoying like something they're doing, an event, a feeling that they want to capture. Like that's a beautiful thing. It's just like recontextualizing why you're taking the photos you take. And while on the one hand, it might be empowering, it might, it might be empowering for you to post pictures of yourself that don't look like what you have seen reflected in mainstream media. Like, absolutely, yes. But also we want you to understand that your power exists outside of that. Yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit, get in a little bit deeper on this self-objectification issue. I thought it was really interesting, some of the stuff that you were saying about how this can affect our mental state beyond just how we see ourselves, but actually our ability to succeed and achieve motivational states. Research backs up that when you're in a state of self-consciousness like that, that state of self-objectification, you perform worse on math tests, on reading comprehension tests. You can't get into a flow state while working out, like running on a treadmill or on the elliptical. You So you perform worse in things like lifting weights, your relationships, because instead of like being able to experience real intimacy, real pleasure, you are prioritizing how you look over how you feel. In so many ways, self-objectification, it just it throws us on the sidelines of life and we stay there. Like if we write about in the book and we've just heard from so many thousands of uh, girls and women that the, the self-objectification that's such a normal part of their comfort zones keeps them from like leaving the house, like going to the grocery yeah. store if you have a zit, you know, like we don't go up for promotions or volunteer positions we want or go to events we want to 
all because we don't feel like we qualify to be seen. It's subtle too. Like, um, you know, when I was younger, I feel like it played out with sports. I, I know that um, in the TED Talk, you talked about swimming, which was definitely the same for me when I was younger. And also just socializing in general, making friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just ex- literally just the most basic form of existence in the world felt hard. Most people can recognize what it is, right? And, you know, what self-objectification looks like. But, I mean, how do we actually start to unravel and um Set, I guess reintegrate ourselves because yeah. self self objectification is kind of like separating your yeah. mental and physical. How do you come back together as one? Everybody hopefully has a memory or several memories of when they were really little and they weren't just riddled with self consciousness. Hopefully, there was a time in your life when you were able to like run around the backyard or um, be in a swimsuit at the community pool without being hyper aware of how your body looked and how other people were reacting to your body or perceiving you. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the first step is to think about those times. Find a picture or a video of yourself if possible from when you were little, so like pre-adolescence, and and rechannel what it was like to be in a body that didn't exist to be looked at. That should be the norm. You know, a lot of boys and men still live like that. And it's much more rare for girls and women. And it certainly doesn't mean that they're, that a lot of boys and men live like that. Self-objectification is something that people of any gender identity can experience. But it hits girls at younger ages. And it's so much more prevalent because of this culture that we're surrounded by that rewards and protects objectification. It's not just a normal part of growing up and growing older that you're constantly picturing how your body looks. That is learned behavior. And once we are able to identify the ways it has actually impacted us, the ways it actually shows up in our lives, that's when we can start those steps toward um, disrupting that as soon as it starts. That is the catalyst to turn back to yourself and then start to practice the strategies that will allow you to reconnect. The first one that I do is to stop and do um, what they call soft belly breathing. It gets you out of this anxious cloud and it gets you recentered back in your own body. Your body is your home. And so when you can just do five slow breaths, like really just a bare minimum, do five slow breaths in through your nose and then out through your mouth and keep your belly soft, that's where you're able to decompress a bit and get re-embodied. That's a really simple first step, but it will give you the space to be able to be conscious enough to say, I'm self-objectifying. My body is an instrument, not an ornament. I'm going to come home to this body that I've lived in, that I was born in, that every good and bad experience of my life has been within. And I will now practice those strategies that I'm learning that have built my resilience and allowed me to get through this moment without self-harming or turning to addictive behaviors or hiding or fixing or any of the things that have kept us in a really uncomfortable comfort zone. We really feel like our mantra and the subtitle of our book, your body is an instrument, not an ornament. We feel like that is such a, a useful and attainable way to help people come back home to themselves constantly. And then I do instrumental things with my body. So I will, I'll work out. If I'm trying on some, the other day I was trying on some jeans. I had a baby 18 months ago, COVID hit. I have not had to wear jeans in so long. I have not had to go outside. They were tight. And instead of 
facing that disruption to my body image the same way I always used to growing up where I thought I would think, oh my gosh, I'm disgusting. I need a plan. No more carbs. I can't go out with my friends because I can't eat and drink what they're, you know, what they're drinking and eating. I'm going to punish myself until I qualify to be seen again, until I can wear these pants again. No, instead I felt the shame rise up. And then I remembered that I do not deserve to feel this way, that my body is an instrument, not an ornament, that it has gotten me through a lot. So I practiced gratitude. I did some lunges right then and there to feel my body working. And I came back home. It, it reminds me a lot of mindfulness. Oh, yeah. Mindfulness practices. Mindfulness is so key because like Lindsay said, shame and self-objectification, they live in the ether. They're abstract. They live in our minds. It's that same mindfulness that will help you when you're scrolling or when you're watching a show, you're looking at a screen, a billboard, whatever, and you feel yourself split. You feel that, oh, I, I don't look that good. I need to fix this. I need to hide this. You can come back home through mindfulness that suddenly you think, no. This is not a thought I deserve to have. I am so much more than this. How can I like enjoy my body as an instrument instead of an ornament? How can I come back home? I am so much more than my body. And that is totally mindfulness. It's such mm -hmm. a good first step here. Do you guys have any ideas for how to navigate conversations with people that, you know, maybe friends, loved ones who comment on your appearance a lot or friends who do the diet talk thing? This has been a source of inner turmoil <laughs> for me, especially yeah. living in L.A. Yeah. L.A. is such an image-focused culture. And, yeah. you know, a lot of my friends call themselves feminists, but there's so much diet talk. And I'm not always sure how to broach that conversation or if I should. Yeah, such a good question because every single one of us can relate to it. It has to be this careful and pretty vulnerable practice of curating not only your social media feeds and the types of entertainment that you allow into your world, but also your interpersonal relationships. Um, not everyone is going to be on the same page as you about, um, you know, their feminist journey and their body image awakening and all of that stuff. But everyone can relate, hopefully, unless you're a sociopath, to somebody's vulnerability, to someone really being genuine and sincere and saying hey, I want you to know that I've really struggled with my body image in the past, and I'm doing a lot of reading and work now to try to figure out how to find my value outside of my body. Will you help me with that? Can we cut back on the diet talk? Um, I know that you you always have nice things to say about my body, and I know that you just asked if I lost weight, but I'm really trying hard to value myself outside of how I look. If you can be vulnerable and raw with people, if you can share your personal experience instead of coming at them with research or a critique, you're going to disarm them a little bit. And that's, yeah. that's what everyone needs here because we are defensive of these beauty ideals. And especially people who are, um, you know, proudly feminist and really into social justice. And yet there's a bit of a blind spot to where the harms of beauty ideals and diet culture and the ways that they are really impacting women in a very real way, mm -hmm. that can cause some defensiveness. It's natural. And so we want to hedge that from the very beginning by leading with our own personal feelings and experiences instead of just coming at people with a straight up critique that would, of course, cause defensiveness. Another thing that I've encountered, um, not just with people that I know, but online, and actually I kind of struggle with this myself too, is sort of how, how do we balance this body resilience uh, journey with, let's say, healthy diet and exercise and behaviors? Because 
at least for me, exercise and, and diet and any, any sort of talk in that sphere when I was younger was triggering. And so it felt like it was either this or that, right? Either I'm going to swear all of this off or I'm going to, you know, go hardcore into the diet and exercise and, and, and take some of those negative messages with me anyway. Mm-hmm. A lot of people will equate um, motivation with shame. They think that shame is a great motivator and that oh, yeah, yeah, feeling, that yeah, and that feeling negatively about your body and, um, you know, getting negative comments or whatever, they think that is going to fuel motivation that will lead to healthy choices and behaviors like a balanced diet and like regular exercise. And what research shows is that actually the opposite is true. Even though that feels like such common knowledge, I swear everyone in the world, when they hear about positive body image for the first time, they think, oh my gosh, they're glorifying obesity. They are, you know, they're (laughs) trying to prevent people from exercising or eating in a healthy and balanced way. And it just couldn't be further from the truth. It's actually so much more in line with health and wellness to try to promote positive body image because no one tries to take care of a body that they're disgusted by. Mm -hmm. It might cause a spurt of motivation to overexercise or change up your diet or try to get rid of your binge eating habit but it is not sustainable and it always backfires because restriction and moralizing food and treating exercise as a way to reshape your body as opposed to a way to enjoy movement and you know experience the world and increase stamina, endurance, and all of those things, all of that is objectifying and all of that takes your health and puts it outside of your body as if it's something to be measured from the outside and looked at and appraised and observed. People who feel okay about their bodies are less likely to compulsively overeat and binge eat and be in that restricting and binging cycle. Anyone who knows about health and fitness knows how many people are in that cycle and the way they use exercise to punish their bodies and make their bodies smaller. And that's not sustainable. Women perceive themselves as failing in an exercise routine when they don't lose weight and they quit exercise. Over and over again, this is found in research. So if you want people to exercise, if you want people to make what you perceive as healthier eating choices or to um, you know, kick the binge eating habit, that addiction really that so many people have because of this yo-yo cycle, then you want to come at them with a shared set of values that says, we need all bodies to be good bodies and start from there. All right, that was Drs. Lexi and Lindsay Kite. You can find them on Instagram at beauty underscore redefined. And if you'd like a deeper dive, definitely check out their book, More Than a Body. I've recommended it to so many different women in my life, and I think it's a really good primer for the conversation. Thank you so much for joining me, my dears. I'll see you next time.